Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. the stars aligning for a new commodity bull market. Welcome to this Real Vision Deep Dive series interview. My name is Andreas Steno. I'm the senior host here at Real Vision and founder of Steno Research. And given today's topic, I'm thrilled to announce that we have Mr. Doomberg as the guest of the hour. It's a great pleasure to host you on our platform. Again, welcome to the interview, Doomberg. And Andreas, great to be back with you. It's been too long, my friend. I'm very much looking forward to uh, another fantastic discussion with you. As far as I remember, Doomberg, we um, the last discussion we had was basically amidst the very peak of the European energy crisis during the autumn. And I'd like to start with a uh, discussion on the backdrop uh, in global commodity markets right now. Um, we've seen a couple of quarters, if not three in a row, with slightly lower prices uh, on a trend basis. So what do you make of the backdrop right now in global commodity markets after the storm that we saw uh, during the autumn of 22? So I would partition the commodity markets into sort of different areas because they are behaving separately um, with their own supply demand and potential uh, future forecasting. Um, I think the oil market is tightening correctly and and it does feel like we're at a critical moment if you look at the chart for Brent, we're coming up to the sort of edge of um, resistance, multi-month resistance in that sort of $85 to $90 a barrel range. And um, we do see the bullish formation. Of course, if, if, if it doesn't burst through this resistance, then all bets are off. But um, I think the biggest change in the backdrop from when we last discussed the oil market is the fact that there is really no more um, juice left in the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, there had been some 147 million barrels of mandated future sales out of that, uh, out of the SPR. Um, but in January, I believe it was, Congress passed a reconciliation bill that retroactively applied the sales from last year to those mandates. And so um, we've just seen, uh, I believe, the last of the sales out of the SPR for some time. And uh, that was 1 million barrels a day of cushion for the market last year that, um, you know, unless China gets involved with its large SPR, uh, something we could talk about. Uh, it seems as though that buffer uh, capacity has been pulled from the market and the market um, uh, no longer has that um, that flexibility that the Biden administration provided it. And and I think many, most would agree that the sort of collapse in prices from 125 to the $70, the $75 range um, was due in large part to the aggressive uh, introduction of excess supply for largely political reasons um, by the Biden administration. And, and to be fair, they worked, you know, they had a, a better than expected midterm election. And, uh, but, but taking away that, um, that excess, um, I think the market is beginning to digest that if we have any kind of an economic recovery in China um, and the US economy is coming in a little stronger than many perhaps had feared, um, that we could be sitting up for a, a pretty decent run in oil. Um, natural gas, as you know, is a completely different story. And last time we talked, it was uh, reaching truly historic prices. I think probably somewhere close to $100 per million BTU, which is just an insane number. Um, and of course, um, the big story is the winter that wasn't in Europe, um, which thankfully um, the temperatures came in 
far warmer than um, than many had feared, um, and and the um, you know the uh, worldwide search for BTUs on the part of uh, Western Europe and in particular the Germans paid off, and they made it through the winter thankfully. Um, and so prices, of course, because natural gas is amongst the most inelastic of the commodities because of its you know the difficulty in storing it have collapsed. We would argue that we are probably at peak complacency in Europe um, with respect to energy and. We would note that um, March of 2023 ended a three-year La Nina cycle, and um, and now, of course, um, uh, everybody is talking about a new and strong um, El Nino. And we would point out that historically, La Ninas lead to um, warmer than average winters in Western Europe, and El Ninos tend to lead to significantly colder and drier than average winters in Western Europe. And um, you know, that the prices really had a, a mini peak in December during those 10 days where it was quite cold in, in Europe. Um, one wonders what will happen if we end up having a, a, a colder than what the market perhaps is pricing in uh, weather uh, in Western Europe. And so um, from the energy side, those are the sort of two broad strokes. Um, commodities, of course, everything depends on China and, um, and the economic data coming out of there is always questionable, of course. Um, and so that's sort of our, our broad overview, I would say, um, you know, bullish oil um being careful of course that um others uh, may interfere with the market you're you're trading against the political intentions of the biden administration which is not to be taken lightly um complacency in natural gas uh, with with very low prices might lead some to consider that to be a bullish setup um with limited downside and potential significant upside and then commodities is a bit of a black box depending on uh, china I'd like to uh, allow you to elaborate a bit on the sort of talk of war between Saudi Arabia and the Biden administration in uh, in the oil space. Um, as far as I'm concerned, as of the time we uh, send live here, we haven't received the confirmation from Saudi Arabia that they uh, intend on limiting supply through the month of September yet this week. Uh, but we are waiting the signals from the Saudi Arabian administration on that front. Um, they um, they limit supply by a million barrels a day, uh, roughly south of a percent of of the total consumption on a daily basis. If if I'm not mistaken, Doomberg. So how important is this decision from Saudi Arabia, and is the White House administration able to respond to it? I, I, I would guess that there is an ideal price for oil hmm. that OPEC would like to see, and it's probably not much higher than here. Um, and so with no more SPR reserve. I think that probably gives the the controlling uh, factors back to um, OPEC plus. Um, and of course, this is not a monolith. It's it's countries with their own self-interest. And, you know, um, I saw some higher than expected Russian drilling numbers um, uh, over the past couple of days that might uh, make it appear as though their commitments to cut might not come true. Um, so I think at, you know, 85 to 90 rent, the Saudis are probably pretty happy. And um, at 70, they are probably not very happy. And um, and so perhaps there has been a, a back channel deal that as long as the price remains range bound um, below, you know, measurably below 100, um, that this is something that all sides could, could potentially deal with. I think in many ways, you know, the history of people who have gone to war with the U.S. over oil is not a glorious one um, in the long term. Um, um, just strange coincidences that regimes get overthrown uh, when they when they seem to run against the U.S. dollar and and the policies around oil. And I think MBS has has declared his independence from the U.S. in a unique way compared to say uh, leaders uh, of, of yesteryear. But um, I think that the, the, they would be happier at 87 than they were at 70, and I'm not sure they would be happy above 100. 
And so if prices do get away from the market, I think that the Saudis would be quick to um, to put a ceiling on prices as well. Um, that, that's just my view. I don't know if you have a different one, but that's that's sort of my feel for the situation. I don't think anybody wants outright war with oil going to 150 or $200 because everybody knows that's unsustainable for the economy and, and causes significant disruption. It causes... Um, uh, people to over uh, overbuild and to um, to spend uh, uh, unwieldy amounts of money, but assuming they're drawing uh, a, a tangent line to a sine wave, one might say, you know, from the engineering side of the world. And uh, they would, people would like to have high and stable prices, um, not volatile prices with some upside. I, I tend to agree with that assessment, and uh, based on anecdotal evidence from uh, my client base in in the non- northwestern parts of Europe, it also seemed like a uh, a lot of uh, speculative investors were involved on the short side um, when we traded uh, ten dollars lower than we do today um, on on crude. Um, basically in an attempt to force the OPEC plus group into non-compliance. And it seems like the speculators have lost that bet against uh, Saudi Arabia in particular over the past couple of weeks, if not three here. Uh, so, so fully agree on, on, on that assessment. I'd like to, to uh, pick your brain on the demand side of the oil equation as well, because we've talked a lot about the supply side so far uh, with the um, SPR releases and the Saudi Arabian uh, supply cuts. So what do you make of the demand side? Do you see early signs of an actual pickup in demand here uh, from both China, but also the more cyclical components of the U.S. economy? Interesting question. Um, the uh, the U.S. Uh, Energy Information Administration keeps revising uh, up its uh, prior uh, reports on demand. Um, and interestingly, all of their revisions uh, make prior demand higher than they initially reported to the market, which begins to call into question the data itself over time, you know, if all of the corrections are are in one side and it just coincidentally the politically expedient side, uh, one wonders whether some of this isn't being managed. Um, I, I, I did see a headline um, as we were getting ready to record that we set a new record, worldwide record for demand uh, for oil. And um, I, I'm of the sort of the Luke Roman school of demand analysis, which is at um, at reasonable prices, the demand for oil is effectively infinite. Um, you know, uh, energy is life. Everybody wants a higher standard of living. If oil were $30 a barrel, would be uh, the demand for it would be much higher than it is today. That we are setting record demand for oil at these prices is pretty indicative um, of that fundamental axiom. And so uh, when we study the oil market, we, we tend to focus more on, on production and supply. They're two different things, of course. Um, one is sort of pre, is a precursor to the other. Um, and so I, I think, you know, a carefully managed oil market where Brent is in the high 80s and demand is setting records is probably pretty ideal for OPEC plus. Um, if you can't, especially given their cost curve, you know, their position on the cost curve, if, if you can't fund your domestic uh, fiscal needs at $85 oil, then uh, we all have bigger problems to worry about. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. If, if we look at so-called crack spreads right now, uh, both in Asia but also uh, in the U.S., uh, we've seen a, uh, a trend up with alongside higher prices in uh, in, in Brendan crude. And um, my question relates to whether this crack spread, um, I guess the popular translation of a crack spread is the uh, refiner's margin, uh, whether that crack spread is an important gauge uh, for um, someone like you following the commodity markets closely. Is, is it a gauge of 
the true demand uh, from from the refiners? How do you view that crack spread? And is it something that we need to watch here? Yeah, the, the fascinating thing about the oil markets is um, people conflate the price of oil with the price of gasoline or the price of diesel mm-hmm. or the price of jet fuel. But in reality, um, each of those downstream markets is a supply demand market uh, uh, of its own. And um, this is the ultimate form of byproduct economics, right? And so um, the crack spread, it depends on the composition, which of the products is driving you know, the crack spread. And so if you have a shortage of diesel worldwide, then you could give away gasoline and the refiners would make enough money. Um, and this is actually one of the things that we point out when we um, argue that um, you know, electric vehicles aren't going to dent the, the future demand for oil uh, nearly to the extent that um, some in the environmental movement would, would like to project. Because we're still ultimately um, of the three major products, um, whatever the demand is, um, the, the highest demand for those three major products is what's going to drive uh, the number of barrels of oil that are refined. Um, and so um, diesel, you know, diesel is used in things like tr- heavy trucking and, and uh, heavy tractors and, um, and mining equipment to get the, the so-called green metals that we need for the very electric vehicle revolution that the environmentalists are proposing. Um, in a world where um, you know diesel demand is growing and gasoline demand is shrinking, um, they'll give away gasoline, and uh, the emerging market will soak it up. And so, um, you know, whenever we look at a crack spread, the number itself is a, is certainly an indication of uh, refiner margins. Um, but in reality, you need to do one level deeper to see uh, which market is is driving that spread. If it's jet fuel because you know people are traveling again and China's reopening, is it it's diesel because the global economy is growing? You know, diesel also powers all of the cargo ships. It powers, you know, um, all of the supply chains. And these are what um, what, what the um, environmentalists would call hard to abate sectors. Um, it's very difficult to imagine replacing a diesel truck, for example, with anything viable today. And that's why um, they haven't. Uh, and so um, crack spreads are interesting. And of course, there's an, an, a meta analysis of the fact that we don't have enough refining, especially in the U.S. Um, and, and so um, ultimately. Byproduct economics is driven by the constraint, and um, and it's probably it's it's actually a fascinating one of the more fascinating economic situations to model is when the same factory produces four things, mm. and you can't toggle the supply demand balance of those four things uh, to any degree. Um, how the prices interplay with each other is is really uh, something that is is well worth studying. And uh, you know, with our background in, in the commodity sector, this is something that you run into very often. Speaking of uh, of China, you mentioned uh, China, um, and I'd like to 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 get your take on the Chinese strategic petroleum reserves as well. Um, it's been a topic brought up by by quite a few um, pundits in the commodity space as well, and I find it interesting since um, it is typically very difficult to like fully confirm numbers out of China. So, do we actually know? Uh, the true size of the Chinese SPR, and um, how big of a um, thing is this Chinese SPR if it is actually actually taken into use in force by um, by the Chinese authorities? Uh, t- two questions there: the size of it, and whether they're likely to use hmm. it for um, the purpose of capping the price of oil, which is uh, as some pundits and. and several that we respect uh, seem to be implying uh, here recently. Um, I've seen estimates that it is um, 460 million barrels. Um, I, that could be wrong. All data from China could be wrong, um, but that would be sort of 
60% of the size of the U.S., but far more uh, if it's full than what the U.S. currently has. Um, I think the U.S. has like 360 million barrels left in the holster. Um, we, we recently gave a presentation to our pro tier uh, called Doom Scrolling, um, searching the globe for things to worry about. And um, we, we had a section there on whether or not China is preparing for war. And then, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but a, a week and a half or so ago, uh, Kyle Bass gave this really interesting presentation at the Hudson Institute. And it was one of those um, Ben Hunt, quote, uh, why am I seeing this now moments for us? You know, why is Kyle Bass, a hedge fund manager, talking about a geopolitical military situation in in China at the Hudson Institute of all places? And, and I watched the video. You can find it on YouTube. If you just Google Kyle Bass, China war, it will come up. Um, and he, he made a pretty compelling case that President Xi is um, is preparing his domestic audience for war. And um, his main thesis is that if you read what Xi is actually saying versus how the West is portraying it, there's a vast chasm. Um, and so if, in fact, and, and you know, there's a question that we would have as to whether this is defensive posturing or preparing for a true offensive move. And, you know, um, an invasion of Taiwan need not be what we all think it is, you know, the wars of yesteryears. Um, but if he is, in fact, either defensively or, or offensively preparing for kinetic conflict with the U.S., one would imagine that he would be far more concerned about supply of oil, of oil than price of it. And that, that if he has a, a relatively full strategic petroleum reserve, the last thing he would be doing is worrying about the price. Um, and he would be uh, more interested in stockpiling in case of a blockade. Um, you know. And so um, if you pushed us, we would probably fall into the camp that President Xi has sort of developed this Stalin-like uh, surroundings where people are afraid to tell him the truth. And, you know, uh, the show trials and disappearing uh, foreign ministers and so on. Um, I don't imagine that if you have something uh, controversial to say, it takes it, you know, it must take some courage uh, to tell the truth. And so who knows what he believes and what he is preparing for. But um, if you pushed us, we would say that they would not try to use their SPR to manipulate the price of oil. And that if they are in fact uh, at least preparing for provocations with the U.S., that they would be more concerned about keeping several months of, uh, of, of supply uh, within their domestic borders. Makes a lot of sense. And I think this is um, the perfect bridge to a uh, discussion on the underlying policies uh, in the commodity space, and in particular in the energy space, both in Europe, in the US and in, uh, in Asia. And I'd like to start with a discussion on the uh, European policy setup heading into um, the winter season in yeah, say three, four, five months from now, depending on on uh, whether we actually get cold weather already from October. And um, I noticed that the um, German secretary in charge of the energy policies, Robert Habeck, said, was it two, two days ago, that Germany um, should expect five tough years ahead due to the decisions taken over the past couple of years. I think that's, I mean, finally he, had, he admits to it at least. Uh, but in any case, uh, you wonder why he closed down well-functioning nuclear capacity amidst all that. But in, in, in any case, how do you view um, the European policy setup uh, ahead of this winter? And do you see any clear risk scenarios uh, for both uh, the natural uh, gas situation, but also, of course, this belongs to the uh, electricity markets in uh, in Europe, given this. It's it's really fascinating to watch. Mm. And of course, you're much closer to it and much better connected than we are from over here. But, you know, if you ask me to pick one metric to watch uh, for a, a uh, indication as to the political dynamics in Germany, it would be the, uh, the polling numbers around uh, the AFD party. Yeah 
which have been exploding higher. And then we are noticing how the um, incumbent uh, sort of uh, elite uh, political establishment within Germany is trying to make even the mere mention of, of perhaps collaborating with the AFD in a, in a coalition government as taboo. Um, they shall be the party that nobody even uh, names. And I, we do wonder whether this might create a bit of a Streisand effect uh, where the uh, the efforts to suppress only um, cause the popularity of the AFD to grow even larger. And I, I saw a, a German party member today was out saying uh, we should be prepared to sacrifice more of our standard of living. We have, uh, you know, in the name of, of, of climate policies and the, and the, and the so-called green energy transition, I, I suspect this won't be a popular platform uh, from, from which to run. Um, and I do see that, um, you know, the, the German politics is, is complex for outsiders like us to analyze. And so you should take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. But um, uh, pattern recognition of, uh, of an unpopular party um, uh, digging in and uh, because they truly do believe what they're doing is right. Um, you know, it is important to sacrifice the standard of living in Germans for the good of the planet. It's all fine. But, uh, you know, in the last poll that I saw, the Greens were barely above 10 percent and uh, they seem to be the swing deciding party. Uh, and I do think that the critical blunder in Germany, and you can correct me if you have a different view, has been this uh, forced transition of uh, furnaces to heat pumps um, and, and so on, causing people to wake up and realize that, hey, wait a minute, this is actually affecting me in a real and tangible way. Um, and then, of course, obviously, the deindustrialization that is ongoing as companies view those policies and and see that there are other places in the world where they can set up shop. I mean, uh, five years. Uh, who, who, what party has ever run on uh, stick with me for five more years and it'll be worth it? Um, <laughs> you know, I, it's really amazing that this would even come out of his mouth. I, I, you tell me what you think. I mean, you're much closer to it. But. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Well, it's it's pretty clear if you watch the industrial trends out of Germany that uh, at least the, the most energy sensitive uh, parts of the manufacturing industry um has basically left the country already or scaled down materially. And I, uh, I, I tend to agree with you that it's hard to envisage, uh, envisage a scenario where it returns. Uh, so I guess to a certain extent, the energy situation could solve itself, <laughs> given that like very heavy industry leaves the country. Uh, and I think it's also one of the reasons why we've seen um, sort of a stronger balance in energy markets in Germany um, after this, because well, the industrial production is still very low compared to a couple of years ago as a consequence of the energy policy. And of course, then you need less energy, <laughs> ultimately, uh, which may help him out. Um, but um, of course, at the consequence of uh, lower standard of living for, for many Germans. So I, I, I probably share your sentiment. Um, and uh, well, you mentioned Voldemort, as we would say, uh, the AFD party. And, and, and obviously, um, it is still very much an unthinkable scenario that they will have anything to do with um, uh, with relation to to governing the country. But uh, who knows? Um, at least you're absolutely right that they're trending upwards in um, in the polls currently. If we look at the current natural gas situation in Europe, um, we've seen victory laps by many European politicians over the past couple of quarters. Uh, and we've uh, also seen how the uh, numbers um, on the natural gas storage situation have been shared by by many um, even politicians from from the European Parliament etc uh, Europe is on course to to um, to yeah well 
uh, have full storages by 1st of November. Um, the issue here is that the storage is, is not particularly large relative to demand in case of uh, an adverse scenario. So how, how much uh, does the situation need to, to, to sort of change to bring back the trend of, of higher natural gas prices and electricity in, in Europe, Doomberg? Is it, is it a feasible scenario that, for example, a cold winter could uh, wreak havoc with, with already full storages, more or less? Uh, well, absolutely, and I yeah. would say again, um, we certainly hope that this does not uh, come to pass. You know, um, uh, Twitter trolls notwithstanding, um, we are not sitting around the table hoping for crisis. <laughs> it's a, you know, we are trying to warn against such scenarios, and I hope that policymakers um, eat those uh, those warnings. And and we, you know, we 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 have written several times that it is our sincere hope that the European political establishment does not confuse good luck with sound strategy, mm. but. Um, the irresistible temptation uh, to do so, uh, to score political points, um, uh, gives us um, some concern. Um, you know, the storage, again, depends on the country. You know, certain countries have an enormous amount of storage. The UK has practically none. And so storage levels don't really matter uh, in Germany, whereas they might matter in the Czech Republic. I'm um, oh, sorry, in the UK, but they might matter in the, in the Czech Republic or Austria or pick your favorite country. Um, and um, then there's also, of course, the daily maximum drawdown rates from the storage as well. And so um, you may end up in a situation with rolling blackouts at the worst time. You know, the, the problem with Germany in particular is um, the doldrums combined with the shutting down of the nuclear power, combined with um, elevated prices of natural gas now that um, most of their natural gas is no longer coming from uh, Russia via land pipeline or under the sea. Um, but instead is coming in via LNG. And even though LNG prices are down significantly, at $10 per million BTU, this is still um, significantly more expensive historically than natural gas was delivered via the pipelines. Um, and of course, at $100 per million BTU, like it was last year, this is just insane numbers and it and is unsustainable. Um, we do uh, uh, worry um, about that combination of um, cold, dark, no wind um, because of El Nino, um, uh, you know, there's no amount of wind capacity or solar capacity that will help you when it's not blowing uh, or the sun isn't shining. And so, again, uh, we do believe that the Germany will be relying substantially on coal, um, uh, even more so now that they've shut down the nuclear power plants. Um, uh, you know, our, my friend um, Mark Nelson um, at Energy Pants on Twitter um, has been pointing out and released, released a report that uh, eight of the German nuclear power plants that have been closed um, are in a position where they could be reopened in relatively short order. And if there were to be a crisis this winter, say a uh, four or five week cold snap of, of historic proportions that causes a bit of mayhem, one would hope, uh, first of all, that um, nobody truly suffers from such an event. And then secondly, that maybe um, a, a newfound appreciation for um, steady base load power, carbon-free power like nuclear um, might be um, the political consequence that follows from it. Um, the fear, of course, is that you end up getting a populist government, um, you know, uh, that the people revolt and, um, and, and the leaders who um, put the population in this circumstance are swept out of power and we all might not like the people that replace them. Mm. Um, and so this is why we've tried to warn our friends on the progressive environment, the left, that, that the path function matters and uh, the people will riot. Uh, but um, thankfully, last winter was uh, relatively easy. It was uh, we had a slide in the presentation that we gave to our pro tier that uh, shows the historical deviation from mean. Um, most of uh, the back half of December, January, and February were routinely touching the 90th percentile from a, a, a relative warm uh, temperature scale, and um, very, very rarely did it reach the the cold side of, of that uh, standard deviation. 
if, if we if we have a repeat of that this year, I think if they get through this winter, then the coast is much clearer. So I do believe that the uh, infrastructure is being put in place, you know, the LNG export capacity that is needed to ship to Europe and the import capacity that is needed to receive it um, is getting better all the time. Storage uh, levels will become uh, higher as, as new storage sites are developed and, um, and also storage will become less relevant as, as the supply uh, arteries are connected and turned on online. And so this would be the last winter of maximum stress in our view. And we do hope that uh, Europe gets through it just fine, even if it means that people we disagree with politically get to, to, to uh, spike the football, as we would say in the mm. U.S. Um, we'd rather have them spike the football than to see millions of people suffer. I um, I actually sunbathed on the um, uh, during the day of the of the New Year's Eve last year, so I guess that's pretty telling in terms of temperatures mm -hmm. in in the northern part of Europe. I've never ever done that uh, during my adulthood, so uh, before at least. Um, in 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 relation to natural gas markets, um, we obviously have the TTF natural gas benchmark in uh, in Europe traded out of of the Netherlands, and then we have at least the most well known benchmark in the U.S. the Henry Hop natural gas benchmark, and if you look at the current situation, if uh, you, uh, audience is sitting out there wanting to s sort of bet on on the risk of supply issues in the natural gas space. So how do you view the the, the spread between the TTF natural gas uh, benchmark and the, the Ender Henry Hop uh, natural gas benchmark? And to which extent is it impacted by the increasing imports of LNG in Europe? Good, great question. Um, even within the US, by the way, there are many benchmarks yeah. and uh, we see wild swings in natural gas prices. We have our own mini Germany uh, in California. And um, and whereas, you know, so Henry Hub is sort of the benchmark that everyone thinks is, quote, the price of natural gas in the U.S., but that's the price of natural gas at the Henry Hub. Uh, <laughs> and um, in California, for example, in December of last year um, at the SoCal Hub, prices reached uh, $55 per million BTU, um, it was roughly in line with what Europe was paying at the time, believe it or not, despite the U.S. having this abundance of natural gas. We lack the pipelines for political reasons to send that gas. In the Permian Basin, of course, natural gas is largely associated gas, i.e. it is a byproduct of the production of oil. And so at the very same time that natural gas was trading for $55 in SoCal, it was trading for negative prices in the Permian Basin. They, they couldn't give it away. And in fact, many are, were flaring and or illegally just releasing it. Uh, this is a bit of a scandal in, in the in the uh, energy markets worldwide. Um, and so, um, but um, pipelines are being built, and and that excess capacity of the Permian is is going to make its way to the LNG export terminals. And so, um, I, if you were um, looking for sort of a tail risk way to play it, I don't know that you would uh, invest in the U.S. necessarily because hey, it might go from two dollars to three, or I I suppose that's a good percentage return. Um, but um, it, it is a difficult market to trade, of course, and in, his, in the slide that we have, you know, the very first time we wrote about natural gas in Europe was all the way back in October of 2021 uh, in a piece called Putin's Fools Rush In, and we, and we layered when we published that over the price action that happened afterwards, and it's just really an amazing chart. It's a widowmaker trade. I don't know how people trade it and, and stay solvent, um, but, uh, you know, I, I would think that that's you could trade the ratio or you could trade the spread, right? The ratio is actually held pretty steady uh, between four and eight. Um, of course, it blew up to like 16 or, or 20 at, at the blow off top, the Icarus print, as our friend Tony Greer would call it, uh, at, at $100 per million BTU. Um, we, we prefer to look at companies that can benefit from that spread. So US-based uh, natural gas consumers that produce a product that is priced globally. Uh, that's kind of the sweet spot. Um, where you have access to very, very cheap natural gas 
you convert it into polyethylene or fertilizer or pick your favorite, um, you know, um, globally traded fungible product. Uh, and then you pocket uh, the difference on that spread. And those, those players have, have really just minted cash uh, throughout this, even with the prices collapsing, because they're basically making money on the spread. Uh, in relation to to this discussion on um, on benchmarks uh, in natural gas space, we have a question from from George, asking you whether the LNG from North Africa is viable for Europe. Well, I think once um, natural gas gets on an LNG carrier, um, you can send it anywhere. And in fact, during the apex of the crisis, we saw uh, LNG carriers on the way to Asia turning around and uh, rerouting to Europe, um, and so. Um, I would say that there is sort of, there's there's the production side of the natural gas market. Um, there's the floating LNG side of the market, and then there's the consuming side. That once it becomes uh, onshore, so if you're a country that has a terminal, you could you know um, sell it on forward for a profit and and book that difference, right? And so it's not one you know uh, unlike coal. Like we, let's take a step back. Um, solids are easier to ship than liquids, which are easier to ship than gases. And so by definition, um, arbitrage in the coal market should be relatively easier to capture than oil and, and natural gas sort of in that order. And, um, and so, but when you have such large arbitrages, then of course uh, you have all manner of intermediaries, um, trading houses and, and, and logistics companies who uh, get to wet their beak uh, along the way. And, uh, and so I think once uh, natural gas gets on an LNG carrier, where it comes from is irrelevant. It ultimately is, and uh, I can guarantee you that we've had um, a lot of success in the intermediary space in in Denmark trading natural gas over the past couple of years, uh, probably at the expense of other countries in Europe. But that's <laughs> that's how it is sometimes. Um, when we look at at Henry Hop right now, uh, we've seen a stabilization um, in the Henry Hop uh, natural gas benchmark in the U.S., but still at relatively low prices compared to last year. Uh, at some point. Uh, say early this year, I started seeing chatter about the Henry Hop benchmark being below break-even rates, broadly speaking, in the natural gas sector in the U.S. Is there um, any credibility to that narrative? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, are we close to what what is the true sort of lower uh, benchmark for for the Henry Hop here? Well, we're, if if you just peruse the earnings calls of hmm. U.S. natural gas producers, it's a terrible time to be a U.S. natural gas producer, right? I mean, um, um, you know, the, when prices were at 10 or $11, um, you know, everybody went crazy. And now um, there's some frustration, at least amongst the publicly traded stocks, that um, they are not uh, cutting back on production uh, because of the uh, recent decrease in price. And in fact, they are sort of back to the old shale oil patch behavior of, um, of, of uh, burning capital, hoping for higher prices. And so... Um, but whether or not that actually manifests in supply that doesn't find its way to Europe is a different question. Um, it's, it's pretty complex, of course. Um, but I, I would say, again, if, if you're in the Permian, there is no price of natural gas that's too low for you to get rid of it because you're making money on the oil that you're producing. Hmm. And so in many ways, um, I think that the, the potential cap on Henry Hub comes internally and has probably precious little to do with supply demand of LNG in Europe. Um, you know, there, just to give you a benchmark, the U.S. exports between flaring and exporting via LNG, the U.S. Um, uh, produces but does not consume 
roughly on an energy equivalent basis, the totality of the coal that it burns. Um, just as sort of a, you know, McKinsey interview, finger in the air, closest estimate. Um, the BTU, all of the BTUs we burn in the U.S. from coal could be replaced with our own domestic, much cleaner natural gas supply. But that's just not how the market works, of course, as you know. But it is an interesting bit of a benchmark, and I and I do think that um, the last of the growing uh, regions in the U.S. shale is the Permian, and the Permian has with it associated uh, natural gas. And if you look at the production of associated natural gas in the Permian, it is growing at breakneck speed. And um, they can't give it away, which is why it, it priced negative uh, at some points in December. In the middle of the winter, it priced negative uh, in Texas. And so, um, you know, modeling what sets the price of Henry Hub and all of the ebbs and flows, you know, the, the U.S. Northeast, of course, has no pipeline capacity. So it is exposed largely to the LNG market and gets its natural gas predominantly from Trinidad and Tobago. Like the, the US, even within the US, the natural gas market is crazy. I can only imagine the intricacies in Europe uh, and the various contracts that you might be able to trade both uh, with uh, across the region and within each country. We, we get a few questions on, um, on Russia as well. Uh, and uh, obviously neither of us uh, have visited Russia. I'm speaking on your behalf now as well, but probably lately, right? And um, we get questions on Basically, what happens to the supply of natural gas from the northwestern part of Russia when Europe is not buying it anymore? Uh, and I guess that's a pretty good question. Um, and I'll allow you to unpack sort of the technical details of, around what can actually happen to uh, the gas fields in the northwest of, of Russia when there is no um, demand on the other side or, or you don't use the pipelines that you used to uh, so to, to Europe. Yeah. Like you, um, I have never been to Russia. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't speak Russian. I don't read the Russian media. Um, I, I would say that either the infrastructure gets built to reroute it mm. uh, and they uh, flare it between now and then or they stop producing it. Um, mm. uh, but now um, some would argue that stopping producing it is a highly irreversible decision um, that comes with consequences. But I think sometimes they're confusing uh, oil and, and gas as, as two separate um, technologies. Um, I can't say that I am fully versed in the maturity of the technologies being used in those fields and, and the degrees of flexibility that they have. I will say that um, if, if the molecules are produced, somebody somewhere will buy it. Mm. I think we've seen that um, uh, in a great um, bit of irony. We've seen, of course, that the Russian oil finds its way to India for refining and then diesel from India finds its way to the U.S. Northeast to relieve the diesel crisis. Um, you know, um, the people who benefit from trying to sanction volume are, are black market players are willing to take uh, significant risk and risk sanctions and so on. Uh, there's no shortage of such people. Um, historically, if you read Javier Blas's great book on, on global trading, you will see just how um, relationship-driven and wink and smile and back office and cash payments and pick your favorite sort of unseemly behavior goes on in these spaces. And so um, um, valuable fossil fuels will be burned by somebody somewhere. It's just a matter of the logistics costs uh, that we're imposing by trying to sanction the volume. I've actually been to Russia just not lately. Um, <laughs> that I, I'm I'm only one and a half hours away from uh, via airplane, so it's it, it's not that far. Um, but right now, obviously, not really a place you go. Um, in um, in summary, here, Doomberg, um, I'd like to to get your take on whether the stars actually do truly align for a commodity bull market into the uh, winter season. And um, if you have any checklist of 
um, parameters and variables you watch before you you make that conclusion. Um, it, it would be great to to hear your thoughts on sort of pros and cons and, and on concluding that the, the bull market is is here now. So I would like to see a breakout in mm -hmm. oil. Um, I would like to see what happens in the European winter. Again, this is the big unknown. Yeah. If there's a shortage of natural gas and a crisis, then of course we saw last year that coal spiked up $450 a ton. Um, all manner of energy intense commodities that have, um, uh, for example, the mined materials have diesel as an input. Um, the diesel crisis that we saw in the U.S. You know, it, um, the thing about commodities, as you know, is it doesn't take much of an imbalance to see substantial yeah. price moves, especially in natural gas. Um, again, that's sort of. Um, and then we have this fascinating chart that we always watch, which is the normalized price of oil, gas, and natural gas uh, of oil, natural gas, and coal by region where we have calibrated um, dollars per million BTU. Uh, so you can see, for example, for a while that uh, last year was a really amazing number that coal was more expensive than oil on an energy uh, like for like basis, which told us that this was really, a, that was historic first as far back as we could find the data. And um, we told our subscribers that the crisis will not be over uh, until that, um, until that uh, arbitrage or that historic anomaly closes and it did. And so I would say that right now, we the signs are pretty normal and balanced. Um, the, the coal is selling for where it should relative to oil. Um, unfortunately for natural gas, it's just cheap everywhere. Um, you know, $2.50 Henry Hub natural gas is the equivalent of $15 a barrel oil mm. for what is arguably in many ways a more valuable material because it could be burned so much more cleanly. Um, it's really amazing how the local you know, supply demand dynamics, whereas in Europe right now at $10 or $11, pick your favorite. I don't know what it was uh, before we started talking, but that's the equivalent of 60 or $70 oil, which is far more reasonable in that sort of arbitrage uh, uh, band. Um, today, everything is normal, um, which in many ways, of course, uh, you need uh, to be at the beginning of a bull market. If everything was screaming crisis, then of course, that might be time to ponder whether things may have stretched uh, to the high side. Um, but our view is oil is tight. Natural gas in Europe is complacent. Coal is correctly priced. And um, coal, of course, drives a lot of the uh, metals price because of China's dependence on it and China's dominance in many of those metals. Um, obviously, everybody watches the price of copper um, as an indicator as well. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I would say, of course, I'm, uh, I come from the commodity space and I'm inherently uh, a defensive pessimist. And so I would be um, cautious to the upside um, in these markets because, again, we're just one crisis away from, uh, uh, from seeing... Um, a return to supply demand imbalances. You know, the war in Ukraine could spiral. Uh, somebody could blow up a pipeline. Um, not saying that uh, we, we would like any of these things to happen, but if you just look at the sort of tail risk, it's hard to imagine that the tail risk isn't to the upside given the geopolitical tensions, the dependence on the weather, the complacency among European political leaders, uh, and the recency bias of players in the market who might respond to such things if they occur. Mm. And one thing I can add in, in relation to investments in, in, in energy space is that if we look at the past roughly 10 years of, of equity data, you either have the energy sector at the rock bottom of the leaderboard return-wise or as number one during um, uh, years of return. So it's a perfect portfolio diversifier in any case, no matter whether you trust uh, the bull signals that we see uh, price-wise in, in some of the major commodity markets such as, as oil lately. The final thing, we, we also got a few questions on Doomberg um, that I, I'd like to, to discuss with you is whether uh, you see any relevance from the dollar exchange rate um, to, to, to this bull story uh, on, on oil and, and natural gas uh, potentially as well. Um, 
Is is the weakness in the dollar that we've seen over the past couple of months something that you discuss with uh, relevant players in uh, in the commodity space, and is it of relevance to overall price developments? So actually, we would view you know if you just take the DXY, mm. the DXY is basically the euro, the yen, and the pound, mm. and um, all three of those regions are deeply short energy, and so um, when there is a global shortage of energy, those currencies tend to perform uh, less well against the U.S. dollar. Yeah. And when the balances, uh, when the energy market is balanced, um, they tend to perform better and/or trade within their own uh, traditional um, macroeconomic factors that cause currencies to oscillate uh, relative to each other. And so, I believe that the relative weakness, quote unquote, of the U.S. dollar versus, as measured by the DXY, can be explained by looking at the price of natural gas in Europe and the price of yeah. oil from the highs. And so. Um, if you're looking for the beginning of a bull market, then you have to be at the bottom of a bear market. And so um, I would view the relative weakness of the U.S. Uh, of the U.S. dollar um, as a potential uh, bottoming and uh, and a good setup for a bull market going forward. Um, but um, when we have excess relative energy and prices are calm, um, those economies that basically exist to add value to commodities that they don't produce domestically tend to do better. Um, and and in the reverse, when you have shortages, and that's why at the apex of the energy crisis, you saw, you know, the yen weakening, the euro weakening, and the pound especially weakening, um, whereas they they have all stabilized. Now, of course, Japan is its own set of dynamics, with uh, which with would be a whole po- a podcast appearance for us to talk about. And I would be not the most qualified one to do so, but um, by and large, you know, let's say sixty to seventy percent of the variance. Uh, of the DXY can be explained by relative energy prices and whether we have abundance or shortage. Yeah. There is this notion that uh, the dollar is uh, inversely correlated to to energy prices, um, given that if the dollar weakens, uh, the rest of the world can buy more energy. Uh, but you're absolutely right that correlations have turned upside down empirically, um, especially over the past couple of years here. And uh, I fully agree that uh, correlations still hold uh, in that sense that uh, the reason why the dollar has weakened versus the euro is because of a normalization of European energy prices to a certain extent. And if we get a, just a, um, a small flare-up of, of energy prices in Europe, I think it's a sign to sell the euro versus the US dollar, especially given how positive the market is on the uh, uh, Euro currency at the moment. Uh, I, I really struggle. I really struggle to get that. Um, but in any case, a lot of my um, European friends and um, uh, also sparing partners from the industry, they they tend to buy the euro here, and I don't get it. Um, Doomberg, a tremendous pleasure to have you uh, back uh, on the Real Vision platform. Always uh, a great wealth of, wealth of knowledge around uh, the commodity space, and um, I think we've been. Uh, made much wiser uh, after these 45 minutes on whether the stars align in uh, commodity space for a new bull market. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Andreas, and congratulations uh, both personally and professionally for everything that's going on in your life. Big fan of yours, and uh, anytime you want to have us back, um, just reach out because it's always a pleasure. We'll so certainly do that. Thank you very much, Doomberg. And uh, this was it for uh, this edition of the Real Vision Deep Dive interview series. We'll be back with more soon on the platform. Thank you for watching. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best 
brightest and biggest names in finance. 